Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Here's an entirely new take on the woes of our national political life, both politically and especially as it relates to our economy. The big problem is not whether we're running a budget deficit or not, it's a trust deficit. We have such a low level of trust in our politicians and other institutions like the media that it's damaging our economy and threatens our economic future. That's according to the head of a London-based international think tank who's also an Aussie, Mal Fletcher, who'd be familiar to many of us with his many programs on radio and television. Mal is in Australia for the 2020 Plus Civic Leadership event, which was held in Adelaide a couple of days ago. Mal, welcome to Open House. Thank you, Lee. Mal, before we get to the political and economic landscape in Australia, you've come from London, where this trust deficit, as you put it, has been a very significant factor in a range of institutions. And you're saying that's one reason why the UK is now in a double-dip recession. Yes, well, one of the primary responsibilities of a leader in any organisation, and many of your audience will be leaders, so they'll understand this, is to create a sense of security and confidence in people. A confidence based on trust, if you think about it, is the key currency in any capitalist system. Yes. Uh, and in a period of economic tightening, that currency suffers. Um, we look to our national leaders, I think, to create through their personal example and through their policies a culture of confidence, an environment, um, a milieu in which people feel courageous enough to innovate, to invest, to take risks. And all of that is what produces growth. Now, in the UK's case, you know, we've seen the leadership of every major public institution being called into question over the past two years, from the banking industry, through the parliament, the press and media, with the phone hacking inquiry, uh, the police, the courts after the English riots, the universities, who are now charging students incredible amounts of money in student loans. All of these institutions were traditionally the foundation of our social order. And a lack of trust in leadership in those institutions isn't the major cause of Britain's financial woes, but it is certainly a contributing factor. Trust is viral. Those institutions, though, have never been perfect, whether it's the media or politicians, banks or business. Are you saying it's worse now? And if so, why is that? Well, I know it, it, it has always been a challenge for national leaders to maintain not just personal integrity, but an image, a perception of um, integrity. But in many ways, I think the central problem is that we are increasingly seeing politicians treat their role as one of management as opposed to true leadership. And I don't want to denigrate management because it's very important in so many areas of life, but it's not the same thing as leadership. Uh, managers focus more on, on metrics, on measurements. Uh, leaders will focus on mindsets, if you like. Managers look at establishing structures. Leaders are concerned with building culture. Um, management often takes its cues from what in business we call best practice. Uh, but leadership often turns acceptance practice on its head, looking for something new. Uh, there's a strong moral component to leadership too, Lee. I mean, in, in the UK recently, a study showed that less than 30% of workers in private and public companies thought their CEOs were actually making decisions that had ethics at their heart. And that's what I mean by the moral component. So I think in terms of national politics, whether it's in the Australian scene or in the UK, some of our leaders need to reflect a bit more on the fact that they are leaders and not just pragmatic managers. Is expediency anything to do with it because it's always much easier to tell a, even a little white lie than tell the truth and confront reality. 
Yeah, well, it's easier to do what's convenient, isn't it, than, than necessarily what is what is right. And yes. uh, situation ethic has always been a part of politics long before perhaps it was part of mainstream culture. Um, but we do need to reflect on, you know, the difference between conviction politics and perception politics. Um, I mean, there's been a, a slight revising in the UK of the image of Margaret Thatcher in the last little while. She was seen previously as a, quite a tough lady and up in the north, not very well liked. Uh, but now, perhaps partly because of the recent movie about her, there's a little bit of a softening of approach to her legacy. Uh, but Thatcher was certainly a conviction politician. Mm. Um, a friend of mine was her former press officer, and he said that even if you didn't agree with her policies, even if they were quite uh, radical, a little bit controversial, she always maintained in each case that she was doing the right thing. She was driven by conviction. Yes. John Howard used to say, people might not like what I'm standing for, but at least I'm standing for something. Yeah, well, Abraham Lincoln said, you, you know, you've got to plant your feet in the right place and then move forward. Um, and I think what tends to happen sometimes in politics is especially if you have a management mindset, is that people will fumble around trying to find their stance. And by the time they've finished their period in government, they're just beginning to work out what they were there to do. Um, I think it's so much better when politicians enter politics with a clear sense of objectives as to what they want to achieve for the common good, not the good of the party or partisan interest or ideology. And then from that point, move forward. Um, it's like the Leveson inquiry in, in the UK about press and politics. Um, there's no question that politicians will always want to know media bosses and vice versa. Yes. But the, the problem comes in when we treat that as the end in itself. And, and that's what's happening. Yeah. Tony Blair, a couple of days ago, admitted before the Leveson inquiry that he was forced to pay too much attention. Mind you, he wasn't forced, but he did, to how the media treated his government. And now he says again, now that he's out of power, in the wake of the phone hacking scandal, this is the time for politicians to stop cozying up to the media. Yeah, well, as you say, it's fairly easy for him to say yes, now. Yes, he um, would, wouldn't he? He would. And, and, and Mr Blair, you know, is in the UK anyway, often thought of as being something of a perception politician. Mm. Um, as a leader, at least in the early part of his uh, leadership, he was always seemed... He always seemed to be heavily influenced by polling data in, and the power of appearances. And as I say, the, the, that is natural. Politicians want to woo voters. They live off their popularity. So they want to win, win over those who control access to the public. But the problem is that all too often, as in Labor's case in that era, winning approval becomes the end in itself rather than just a means to an end. And the question for Leveson really shouldn't be how much do politicians cozy up to media bosses, but when and why did it become such a central part of what they do? Yes. You highlight the fact that there's been quite a house cleaning in the UK, and yet are there signs in all those arenas, politics, media, banks, business, signs that anything will really change? Well, Lee, I think there are definitely signs that people are tired of business as usual. Um, in a sense, that's the reason Britain now has its first coalition multi-party government uh, in more than 40 years. Um, at the last election, I think the voters were willing to give none of the three established parties a clear majority. And after the premiership of Gordon Brown, they wanted change. But I don't think they were sufficiently trusting of any of the major parties to say, look, here's your mandate to govern. In a sense, I think they're saying... We're not interested in your ideology, we're interested in the issues, and we're also interested in seeing you clean up your act. So you're going to have to work together and provide some checks and balances for each other. So I take that as a sign that people are a bit tired of the way things have been. 
On Open House, we're with social commentator and social futurist Mel Fletcher from 2020 Plus on the trust deficit. So what are your observations on the Australian political system, Mel? Again, at its heart, are there much the same dynamics at work that have given us this trust deficit here? Well, the Australian context is different politically and economically, but I can see signs that, if left unchecked, it might head in the same direction as the UK. Um, thankfully, for a start, Australia has been spared the worst aspects of the global financial crisis. Yeah. I saw last week the OECD projecting that Australia's economy will grow again this year, um, which is a long way from its projections for parts of Europe, for example. Mm. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that Australians are feeling the pinch a little more than they were two or three years ago. Um, the government recognises that business is talking about that. And the impact of even a slight economic downturn is always made worse when leaders of any national institution operate under an ethical cloud. And I think there is a, a, a struggle here in Australia at the moment to maintain a sense of integrity at the top. We've got a near-hung parliamentary situation. People would be expecting in that situation that political leaders would demonstrate a higher level of cooperation than normal. But the present political tone seems to be more about self-serving, you know, some uh, leaders who are more motivated by mutual suspicion and jockeying for position than by a desire to work for the common good during a, a potentially tight season. And um, I think the important thing about that, by the way, is that people not only lose confidence in their political leaders, but in leadership generally. Yes. And to return to that sense, as I mentioned before, whether it's, and this crosses party lines, whether it's John Howard or Gough Whitlam, that he was a conviction politician, someone who stood for something, who had a program. Yes, that's right. And, and sometimes, you know, conviction emerges over time. I mean, it, it's true to say that some politicians, even Margaret Thatcher, um, John Howard might be similar in this respect. They grew in their convictions as years went by. Um, John Howard had a little longer in opposition than most in, in which to sort out his convictions. But, you know, politicians, when they reach the top, are often still working them out, but they don't take their whole term. To work it out and, and that's what we're in danger of at the moment we're in danger of seeing short-term politicians who really haven't got anything worked out when they come to power so they end up managing perceptions managing trouble in the party and not really getting much done and i almost feel like shouting it out tell the truth yes and it's interesting actually not too long ago in the times in london there was a graph which showed the incidence of certain words over the past few years, from 1985, in fact, to the present day. And the words appeared in articles in the Times. Uh, 2001, there was a spike of the word terror or terrorism, predictably. But the, the one that caught my eye was a line that represented the word sorry as spoken by public figures. And it had a, a steady incline from 1985 to the present time. And as politics becomes more personality-driven in Australia as much as the UK... Uh, people are expecting a higher level of personal transparency, of personal accountability from their political figures. Uh, and that spoke volumes to me. I think people are now much more uh, demanding that their leaders are visible, that they're willing to take personal accountability, even for mistakes that other people have made. Do you feel some sympathy for them with all the pressures that they face, which are far greater than they were, say, even 10 years ago, let alone decades ago? Well, they certainly, in, in just the media sense, have a far greater problem to deal with just in managing uh, perceptions without doing it in a cynical way. 
um, 24-7 rolling news media. And then you add to that the viral impact of social networking, which has become a source of news for many people now, mm. you know, Twitter and Facebook and the like. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do. I don't know if sympathy is the right word. I, 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 I think, you know, they go into it knowing what they're getting into. Uh, but I do think it's a wonderful opportunity. I think there's a wonderful opportunity here for leaders to emerge, for people who are willing to stand up and be con- conviction uh, politicians one on one side or the other. As you say, it's not partisan, uh, but not to do it simply out of ideology, but out of a sense of I believe this is the right thing to do in the context of this issue for the common good, not for the good of my particular party persuasion. Although as I observe these dynamics being played out over and over again in politics generally, I sense that there are more and more good people who are less and less inclined to get into this dog's world of politics. (laughs) Yes, and partly because of the hammering that politicians get. And I, I do think there's a part that the, the public, we have to play in, in this, in changing this. And we need, I perhaps, I think we need a little bit more of a, not deferential tone, but more of a respectful tone when it comes to the way we talk about government. And that's true in the UK today, almost as much as in Australia. A few years ago, you might not have been able to say that. But in Britain now, it's quite outspoken, this sense of, look, we just don't, want to tolerate these crummy politicians anymore. But most politicians I've met are in it for good motives. They're there for public service motivations. Uh, So I think that we do need to change our tone a little bit on our side of the fence. I think even as a media practitioner that the media has a lot to answer for in the lack of respect that it's fostered and the harshness, uh, let alone the relentlessness, of lots of the coverage of politics. I think that has delivered us a lot of what the character of the political system is like today. Well, it does become personal after a while, doesn't it? I mean, I've been watching even in, in coming to Australia and the research we did beforehand, the, the way that Craig Thompson, for example, uh, has been treated as an MP. Now, I, I don't know whether the allegations against him will be in the end proven. He denies them. But having said that, I, I think that there's been a tone that's quite angry, it's quite aggressive. Uh, mind you, the Australian media has had a streak of that for as long as I can remember. Uh, but, you know, it seems to be getting worse in the realm of politics, and partly that's the 24-7 news agenda. It's also the digitization agenda. There's so many channels now, online and offline, all trying to cover and bring something different, a new angle, um, that it becomes easier for, as, an, as a pretext to try and go for something juicy. And uh, that's unfortunate when it comes to talking about the facts. Yeah. Talk to us about how you view our political leaders, Mel, as what you call cultural architects and the influence they have on our business leaders and entrepreneurs to innovate, spend, invest, or not, I suppose. Yes, well, I think all leaders are cultural architects. I think that leaders of a business, leaders of civic organizations, of community organizations, they all articulate vision, they map out strategy, they bring activity together to create an environment, an environment, hopefully, in which people flourish. And I would say projects fly. That's how I define leadership. Um, and as a social futurist, I'm very passionate about the fact that technology is not destiny. It's not technology that shapes our future primarily. Uh, it's not even natural events. It's human choice, uh, human responses to technological change or, or events. Um, and many studies now are showing what common sense already suggests, that human choices are largely shaped or influenced by culture as social beings our choices, whether we admit it or not, are impacted by the pressures of social acculturation. We want to be part of the group. And our, you know, our choices reflect that to some degree. And that's where leadership 
whether it's national or micro, is so important because leaders help to facilitate culture, which in turn shapes choices which shape the future. Yes, and there's a real, you say, trickle-down effect of this lack of trust, even as it works out uh, not only politically but economically, the health of our economy. How does that play out practically? Have you got a specific instance that you can point to to say, yeah, that's how it works? Well, I think there are many um, specific instances. I think uh, one interesting one, and not to do with politics, is uh, I was watching the news this morning again, and uh, Google was mentioned, it has been for several days, in reference to the fact that its street cameras were picking up personal data about people as they passed buildings and homes, uh, and they weren't willing to be open about that in the first instance. It was revealed and then they owned up to it later. Meanwhile, we've got Facebook with its problems as an IPO recently and, and how people are now, you know, many people are left holding the baby once that thing's been launched uh, in the New York Stock Exchange. So these are stories that have to do with questions of integrity. It's very interesting to watch how quickly these big companies will do everything they can to speak to those stories, even if it means admitting they were wrong straight out. Look, we were wrong. We made a mistake. We're very sorry. Yes. Because they understand the importance of the currency of trust. And, and it does have a trickle-down effect. If national leaders in companies, but certainly in politics, are under an ethical cloud, people begin to mistrust leadership generally, which means that any leader finds it hard to build that environment of growth, of, of uh, productivity, of confidence. And that's not good for business any more than it is for government. Because over and over again in the history of politics, certainly in the modern era, we've seen that the cover-up or the denial of a reality ends up being the bigger problem than the original mistake. Yes, well, uh, the most infamous example, of course, is Watergate, yes. isn't it? It wasn't the break-in that was the big issue in the end. It was the cover-up. And, uh, you know, henceforth, every political crisis of that kind has had the word gate affixed to it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, it, it's often the cover-up. But, of course, if the lie wasn't told in the first place, uh, there wouldn't be any need for the cover-up. Mal, your work as a social futurist and researching social trends has also covered matters of Christian faith are there ways in which that will inform this debate, do you think? Yes, I think there are. I think uh, Christian faith or faith generally presents us with a worldview, not just a series of dogmatic beliefs. It presents us with a way of seeing the world. Uh, and in the Christian, the particular Christian worldview, the political sphere is ordained and set in place by God rather than being a mere invention of human society. There was a a theologian in the 19th century who also at, at, a time, at one time was the PM of um, Holland, the Prime Minister of Holland. His name was Abraham Kuyper. He said um, that both spheres, the church and government, are set in place by God. Both have a delegated authority, different authority, but it, is, uh, it corresponds. Uh, there's a link between the two. The, the, the church should never do what government does, and the government should not try to do what church does. But both are there to preserve order in as he put it, God's world. And I think faith suggests that politics isn't the main thing, and that's a valuable contribution here, because sometimes in a very heavily politically aware society like ours, we tend to assume that the solution to all problems is going to be a political one. Yeah. You know, that suits politicians because it means they have job security, but the fact is there are many problems that politicians can't solve. And from that faith perspective, we get the force of the truth mattering. Yes, we do. And, and we get the sense of hope that goes with it. I think when it comes to the future, Lee, people need hope as much or more than they need knowledge. 
But a lot that's said in the name of hope today in politics and in other areas is a little more than hype. Um, but faith encourages us to look beyond hype, to think independently. Um, it demands that we approach human promises with a touch of salt <laughs> without becoming naturally suspicious people. Uh, I think it enables people to to give others the benefit of the doubt unless there's a clear reason not to whilst avoiding becoming naive. Uh, at least that's my hope where people of faith are concerned. Al Fletcher, thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much for joining us on Pleasure. Open House. Thank you. We hope you enjoy this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.